and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to decide how to, you know, I work hard for my money. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just so hard for the money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, just yeah. so hard. Um, and I want to see uh, this movie, or I'm intrigued to, to see this movie, The Birth of a Nation. Yeah. But I also don't know that I feel comfortable spending my money on it. That's uh, that's where things have have gotten with this. Yeah, there there's so this is something that I've that I've uh, has been a, a hot topic down there to the UCLA Masters Film Program. Yeah, um, and we actually uh, at more than one lesson we did an episode about not Birth of a Nation, but we did an episode years ago about separating the art from the artist and should you always do that? You know, like we and brought think, up Polanski. Yeah. And I think my feeling on it now is different than it was then. Oh, what, what, what I think at the time I was more in favor of like, um, you know, judgment movie by what happens between the opening and closing sure. frame of the movie. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like in the time since then I have maybe, checked my privilege a little bit more and oh, okay. realized the things that people like, it might be easier for me to be, to distance myself from Roman Polanski's, um, past as a rapist or Mel Gibson's past as an anti-Semite because sure. I am uh, neither Jewish nor have I ever been raped. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, uh, like I said, I've checked my privilege. Maybe I'm a little bit less comfortable and maybe that's why this is this one coming out now. This movie coming out now is, um, like your, fir- my, your first opportunity to really uh, to exercise my uh, wokeness. Oh, can you say something else? <laughs> no, I like. Uh, I know that's like uh, a buzzword now, but I think I like the word woke because I like the idea behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, but remember, remember, privileged people out there. Woke is not an on-off switch. Mm-hmm. Woke is something you should try to be more of every day. Okay, it's not okay. like it's like one morning you wake up or you read the right like think piece and suddenly you're like, huh, I guess I'm woke now. Yeah, like continue to check your privilege. Continue to be more woke every day. And let me suggest this: if yeah. you are slightly more woke than uh, than the person next to you, that person is not a bigot. <laughs> right? Uh, yes, just, that person just, is on their path as well. Yeah, just putting that out there. Yeah. Uh, that's a, like, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's like, uh, uh, that's why I always hesitate. Like I have a lot of beliefs that are, let's say, let's go with feminist. Sure. Right. I definitely check the boxes in terms of what I believe, but I also worry that referring to myself as a feminist or God forbid referring to myself as an ally, like, <laughs> It sounds like, uh, are you, are you familiar with the phrase, uh, virtue signaling? Uh, very, yes. Yeah. It sounds like that to me. And so I am very cautious often not to. And so, yeah, sometimes I think people use like, like, you know, uh, people in positions of privilege that say white men like mm-hmm. myself say like, Oh, I'm woke now as a way of, uh, insulating themselves inoculating themselves. Uh, this is not where I thought this was going to go, but this got uh, really interesting to me really yeah. quickly because these are things I think about a lot. Well, and we're coming up against, you know, th- this whole thing from a conservative point of view is very different because 
we are the conservatives are the ones that are accused of not being as, as woke. It's never phrased that way. Uh, mm-hmm. you're not as woke as you need to be. Like nobody says it like that. I guess they shouldn't, but I think that's sure. We should be thinking of wokeness as a spectrum. I, and that's a, that I'm, I'm actually more on board with because here's, okay, I'm going to get a little broad. Okay. Uh, please woman, female, don't dame how about <laughs> yeah. dame uh so i am now of the opinion and this is a weird just just trust me everybody's conservative eventually okay at some point it could be about separate things oh i see what you're saying like yeah, no, I, it I, could I, be it could be like minimum wage needs to be 15 dollars an hour it's like okay well let's just keep going up one dollar per hour and when you get to the point where you think that's probably enough, congratulations, you're a conservative now, <laughs> you know? And in that, it's just like, it, anytime I think someone's there are people like, who stopped listening to you 30 seconds ago, but I think you're right. I think it, that's an interesting point. Like, and that's the thing. And some conservatives are more liberal than you, than other conservatives. So everybody's liberal in some ways, everybody's conservative in some ways, you know, the only way to be purely conservative is to just be like, I'm done with literally everything and I might actually have to give up some stuff. <laughs> you know, that's is to be like almost Amish. One could say yeah. like, that's the only way to be truly conservative. The only way to be truly liberal is to never really take a stand on anything. Uh, not, not liberal, but like a very specific type of forward thinking, like always moving forward and never saying this is, this is enough. Like the, the word enough should not be in your vocabulary. If it's always about moving forward, because there's never a final destination uh, because the minute you get to the point where you, where you think, no, this is the final destination. All it takes is one person to take one step further and then you, the, you're the bigot. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, so this is, so that's the thing. If conservatives recognize, I think I conservatives know, I bigot in that situation, but it will, that's probably what you'd be called. I get it. It is what you would be called. That's the thing. The person who is one step ahead of you can look back and say that person's a bigot. Uh, and it's just, and so I think, um, I think every conservative needs to recognize that there are elements in which they are liberal, either socially or economically. And I think every liberal needs to recognize that at some point they will become a conservative and they probably already are. For example, on some issues, issues. uh, but that's the thing on every issue you will be eventually. Well, no, because you'll probably die before you get there. Well, that's okay. That's true. That's yes. my like. Yeah, I, I, when I think of like my ideal for like social justice or prison reform mm-hmm. or healthcare reform or whatever, like, and maybe this is just me being a cynic, but it's like I'm not gonna. We're not gonna get there before I yeah. die. I guess I mean philosophically. Um, you know, for example, right now the idea is uh, in my in my. Uh, in my class, uh, in one of my classes, as we went around and introduced ourselves, one of the things that we said was, what is your preferred pronoun? So it's like, all right, so this is a thing that we all are okay with now. The idea of I identify as male or female or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. At what point does some, okay, but that's, we're still in the, in the, in, in the area of human. Yeah. Okay. Tread lightly if, here. If somebody you need to tread lightly. Well, it just, I mean, I, I'm not going to, I don't mean to compare the two, but there is. Right. But I'm saying I did see a story about this woman who identifies as a cat. Okay. Um, but I'm just saying, I'm saying tread lightly because I know you're not saying this, mm-hmm. but there are the people, the Santorums who say like, 
gay marriage, what's next? People marrying right. animals. That's, I, I'm saying to someone who is predisposed to think of you as a bigot, you're giving them a wide open door right there. Right. If you start comparing Because it to you are not embracing nuance <laughs> at all. And you are looking for the opportunity to call someone a bigot. Yeah. Fuck uh, you. The, well, uh, not you. And not, not them either. Everyone's on their own path. That's fine. Hearts and minds. Hearts and minds. That's fine. Let me be on my own path as I make a point. And I'm, again, this is not you. You are speaking for someone that, uh, that, you know, yes. and I'm somebody who will preface all day long to keep someone from disliking me. So yeah. I totally get it. But what, but yes, so there, there's this, there's this stuff that we are all, that we all find acceptable yeah, and that we all acknowledge is perfectly fine and probably, uh, healthy, but at what, but everyone has a point where they say, well, if somebody identifies as this thing that most people would say they are not, them identifying that way is actually destructive for them. For them? How so? Because that might, Like psychologically. Um, you're saying just when you say them, it's destructive for whom? For the person, for the who, person who identifies as Who way. identifies as a cat or whatever? Yeah. I guess, but I, I mean, this is maybe like social libertarianism like sure how does that affect me it does it, it doesn't or, or how, not even just me like how does that affect anyone other than that person and that's the thing is it doesn't really this is why i said like philosophically is it might be a thing you never actually have to say but if it's a friend of yours or if it's a if it's a a, a loved one and you see them veering into something that you would classify as mental illness were it depression or anxiety or anything else that you think is, is self-destructive you would take a step towards hey at, the, at least saying something because you feel an obligation towards them as a human being uh wow where the hell, how did we get here? I love it though. Uh, and so, so that's what I mean is like at some point everyone will have, I remember there was this, this old, this old, uh, debate between Phil Donahue, old uh, the old debates, uh, on the, uh, we're sitting in rocking chairs, uh, smoking pipes, uh, Milton Freeman and Phil I, Donahue. I remember my brother, Christopher got married, uh, he got married in a church, but he has reception at a place in St. Louis called the old post office, which mm-hmm. is literally what. It's a beautiful building yeah. that um, you can now have rent out as a venue. Yeah. And my wife and I, because we're goofballs, just kept saying the old post. Yeah. That, and my, uh, my other brother, Kevin, like kept laughing, but then kept asking us like, why is that funny? I don't understand why that's funny. It's like, I don't know either. It's just funny to say the old post. Yeah, it just makes sense to me. I think that's very funny. Um, but, uh, but there was this old, uh, there, uh, Milton Freeman identified as a libertarian, um, like all the way down the line to the point that Phil Donahue was asking him, well, if you have a, you know, if you have a friend Mm -hmm. who is going to jump off a, uh, off a bridge, what do you, you know, what do you do? And Milton Freeman said, he he goes, well, you know, it's like I would grab him and stop him. And then he, and then he said, well, hang on, maybe I wouldn't. And he said, I would try to convince him, uh, verbally, uh, I would try to tell him that I love him and that he has every reason to stay, but I don't know if I would physically restrain him from doing this thing. Like that's, that's a, that's a libertarianism that moves from governmental to the personal and the philosophical. Um, and it's It's interesting. And, and that's the thing is, is it's not even so much, you'd got to figure it out for yourself. It's like, it is, it is ever changing for every individual person. You know, like you just talked about to bring this back, you just talked about like for a while and I've, probably there with you 
Roman Polanski was like, yeah, but he made Chinatown. What are we going to do? Not see <laughs> Chinatown. Uh, but I think honestly, as we've gotten older and become more adult and mm-hmm. we actually see, and we might be more generally aware either in our own lives or just the lives of the, uh, just the way the world goes, we actually see the consequences of these things. And yeah. we realize that like, yeah, I don't like, look, I love Chinatown mm-hmm. and I love Rosemary's baby. And I love a lot of the movies that, that Roman Plansky has made. Yeah. But there's somebody out there that when they think of Roman Plansky, they think of the worst day of their lives. Maybe. Right. Yeah. And you know, as more things have come out about Woody Allen, that's, he's been yeah. more, um, more troubling. Uh, now let me add, we can't spend all day on this topic, but the other thing I wanted to get to, okay. um, the last two Roman Polanski films, Venus and fur, which I quite liked didn't see and carnage, which I did not care for. I did see um, that. Both of those I saw for free as a member of the press. Yeah. Where does that like enter into morally? Because the money thing is a big thing for me because this is a guy who literally is on the run and the more money he has, the easier it is for him to escape the consequences of his actions. But also, okay. As a critic, there's a difference between how you and I think of our roles as critics Mm -hmm. and how the press people who are offering us screenings, like they're not offering screening, like free screenings to us because they want like a debate on the merits of film. Right. They reviews are a form of publicity for them. And so if I'm reviewing Venus and fur and giving it a good review, or even if I'm reviewing carnage and giving it a bad review, uh, I am churning out publicity, even if it's not what I intend, I am churning out publicity uh, for those movies. And so that's troubling. Let's look at it this way from a, from a time travel point of view, if things went the way they should have from a legal and moral standpoint, Mm -hmm. well, if they went the way they should have, this wouldn't have happened in the first place him him, uh, raping this, uh, young girl. Right. But from that point, from that point on, He's found guilty. He serves out his sentence. I don't know how long that was going to be. He probably would have been out by now. But if the, if things went the way we all agree they should have gone, mm-hmm. there are movies that wouldn't have been made and shouldn't have been made. And so for the sake of argument, let's say, you know, he would still be serving his jail term, whatever. Then it's just like, do I proceed acknowledging that this is a deeply fallen world and that he made carnage when he really should have been serving time in jail or, and, and I still see it and I engage with it as a work of art. Or do I say like, Nope, that shouldn't exist. And by, and by seeing it and reviewing it, uh, I'm, I'm in my own way, kind of, uh, uh, you're complicit uh, or you're endorsing it, endorsing, endorsing it. its yeah. existence. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's tricky. The other question then is, and this is even getting even more hypothetical, Okay, but this comes up <clears throat> in uh, sports, particularly in football, particularly in professional football, particularly with the case of Michael Vick. Sure. Let's say Roman Polanski is arrested, serves his prison sentence, gets out, and makes Venus and Fur, which, I, like I said, I liked that movie. No. Um, am I more in the clear liking it because he's... Um, served his uh you know paid his debt to society i think officially you are more you are that's more how i think clear. Of it too like i because i like like i talked about this this is going to be a motif uh, or a theme uh because i talked about it in the movie journal but um the rights of prisoners is something that i um believe in very strongly and i believe that once a person has served their time they should be uh reinstated back into the world yeah. and that's why i think 
Well, now it's not necessarily my place to forgive Michael Vick for fighting dogs and for strangling dogs and stuff like yeah. that. He did serve his time. And so when people are like, when he first like came back and played for the Eagles, people were like, Oh, how could the Eagles like support that? And it's yeah. like, well, they're, they're supporting, you know, someone who has, who has, whether he wanted to or not has, yeah. has, has met justice of some sort. Like, He's, he's, same he's with Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson's a big one for me. He, yeah, yeah. These are people who have fulfilled the social contract. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, I would say, uh, not that this matters to a lot of our listeners, uh, and doesn't even really matter to me, but it's unchristian <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to keep holding them accountable. Like, forgiveness well, is uh, uh, a big deal, and it's, um, it's, it's a lot easier to keep blaming people forever. Oh, no question. Um, you know, uh, on the other hand, there's someone like Mel Gibson who has never really, I think been, um, uh, conciliatory about, um, what he's done. He's passed it off as saying it's about drinking, you know, which like, I mean, he's, you know, met with the Jewish league and, and that, that, kind of thing. and that feels like to me, like it's just, uh, uh, I don't know, just for show. Um, and I don't like the I was drinking so, uh, routine because I let me I, see. I, I drink. I, I never like suddenly turn anti-Semitic when I drink. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Okay. If that's just for show, then any apology that he offers that would uh, theoretically be satisfying to you could also someone somewhere could say, well, that's also just for show. That's a good point. And yeah, someone who goes to prison for something that they continue to insist they were innocent of, even if they weren't. Yeah. Does that count? Yeah. I think you're right. Maybe, maybe that maybe, uh, apologizing to the anti-defamation league should be enough. I don't know. <laughs> we were both literally yeah, shrugging. shrugging. Couldn't like, help I don't it. know if that, Couldn't like, help I, it. yeah, that doesn't, doesn't sound right, but here's, man, we have gotten, here's another photo. one for you. Okay. David, I don't know if this is fun or horrible. Boy, I'm sure movie's not thrilled. Uh, or maybe they are. I don't know. Um, I don't know if there's any uh, movie. Polanski currently available on the uh, movie. <laughs> um, oh, they're doing a retrospective. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> like, what if you literally pulled up the the copy for this week and it was like Roman Polanski's Carnage? <laughs> yeah. It's like currently available. Uh, they're doing a Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, and oddly enough, a Mike Tyson retrospective. Um, but no, Mike Tyson. So here's here's one. He was convicted of rape. Did not serve very long. Yeah. Many people acknowledge it's probably because he was famous. Yeah. So, yes, he has served his, he has paid his debt to society, but well, as we've learned is that the, debt enough? Uh, uh, yeah, as we learned from the, the guy who, um, the rapist from Stanford, it's not necessarily because you're famous that you don't serve a lot of time. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, our justice system seems to go a little lenient on no. rapists. This is, that's getting even further afield because I have no idea how to feel about that because I hate I hate the double standard that, uh, and I can't remember his name, the Stanford rapist. I do not recall um, his name. Found guilty, and I hate the standard that, like, we have to take into consideration, like, treating him like a victim, like I talked about in the last movie journal, not the two movie journals ago with uh, the documentary Audrey and Daisy. Like, right. that sickens me that that is such a part of our culture. On the other hand, I'm so opposed to our prison system that it's like i can't really get behind advocating for someone spending more time in this awful system uh i don't know where to fall on that um it's yeah yeah it all it all sickens me damn it birth of a nation Uh, look what you did 
Yeah, this was uh, this was fun, but we can't talk about this forever. We do have a topic to get to. Uh, I'm interested yeah. to know what people are going to, how people are going to respond. Uh, they'll respond well. Um, now we have. <laughs> I'm just willing willing it to be sure. Uh, let's put a buffer between this and the uh, <laughs> our sponsors. Yeah, all right. Because um, I'm sure this person appreciates this too. Uh, yes, we ha- we have something in the mail that I got in the mail. It has Tyler's name on it. I'm going to slice open the package and then yeah. hand it to you. We should be ready and to cut this out. Will, this yeah, might if this not turns be... out to be something that is definitely not yeah. intended for uh, on the air, uh, we'll cut it out. But, yeah. uh, I'm not looking in this. I just am opening the That's package. Good. This is private correspondence, David. Yes, exactly. All right, let's take a look at this. This might be like a thing that I said I'd review or something like that. Oh, it's got newspaper in it. But it says, like, care of battleship pretension. It is. Okay, here we go. Oh. Tyler, you may recall that I sent David a Criterion Collection copy of Seven Samurai last year. Thank you for that. I had purchased that disc along with others the prior year at at the Barnes & Noble 50% off sale. Don't, don't we all? Yeah. Do do people buy Criterion any other time of the year? (laughs) Um... (laughs) When you mentioned you had not seen Devil's Backbone during the 922 BP Movie Journal, I immediately thought it was your turn to get a disc that I'm probably never going to watch. Well, just watch it. What's the... What's, <laughs> why, why won't you watch it? Uh, I hope you get the chance to watch it. If so, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks to you and Dave. They called you Dave. I don't mind that. You don't mind? Okay. I did when I was younger. For all your hard work. It makes my day when a new episode appears. Kelly in PA. So I have a Blu-ray copy of The Devil's Backbone on Criterion. Thank you, So Kelly. thank you very Is much, Kelly. Is there something Kelly. else in that box? There's nothing else oh, in this Oh, it's just bag. more newspaper. Okay. Yeah, nothing else in this bag for you. I'm sorry. Uh, no, I didn't mean that. I just thought I saw something else. It was just the packing just, newspaper. Just more. Thank you so much, Kelly. That's now great. we're even. Now we are even. Um, Except, you know what? This one hasn't been opened. Uh, I yeah. believe your Seven Samurai had been opened. Yeah. So, all um, right, Kelly. Get, get to it. Send David something that has not been opened. Yeah. Oh, you said something that I was going to... That I had a response to. In regards to Devil's Backbone? Maybe it was, what was at the end of that letter again? What, I, I had something all queued up. Let me uh, see this. There you go. Um, nope. Uh, I don't know. Oh, well. That's okay. We should probably get going anyway. Uh, yeah, just that's true. We have a hard out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's gonna that's gonna be one of those things that bugs me, and then I'm gonna think of it, and it's gonna be like, oh, that wasn't important at all. Yeah, that happens a lot. Um. All right, go ahead and uh, let's, uh, let's pay some bills. Absolutely. So this episode that you've been hearing so far and what's to come uh, is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Okay, now, if you go to BattleshipRetention.com, you might have noticed that there is a new banner there, uh, and that is to commemorate that uh, right now, for the second year in a row, Mubi is partnering with the New York Film Festival to bring you some groundbreaking experimental and avant-garde cinema. Awesome. Right now, you can watch several films from previous years of the festival, and later in the month, you'll be able to watch highlights from this year's festival. And there is a there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship, to redeem now. And I will tell uh, a quick story uh, that happened uh, yesterday. Okay, make it quick. It will be quick. Uh, so I was talking with some uh, some classmates after class. 
Um, and there's a young man from, uh, from, uh, South Africa. And so it's not unheard of for him to, and he's new to the States. Uh, and so it is not uncommon for him during class and afterwards to say, do you guys have this here? Uh-huh. And, um, and so he was making reference to, uh, he goes, this is this streaming service. Have you, do you guys have movie here? And I, and I, couldn't help it. I blurted out. Yeah, they sponsor my show. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't know I have a show. Nobody knows I have a show. I kind of play it down, and uh, and he goes, "Oh, re- really?" I said, "Yeah." And then I and 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 immediately I was like, "I both do and do not hope that he asks what the show is because <laughs> then it will." And then he he just kind of breezed over it. But but I did say, and actually, you can get a free month of it. <laughs> Uh, of movie uh for you know if you use this code and uh so yeah movie the the word is getting out yeah and uh, i like to and there was a, there i had a, a little swell of pride because while i didn't phrase it this way there's something that i liked where it's like have you heard of movie it's like heard of it they give me money <laughs> so if you subscribe to it it's like you're giving me money what do you think of that so uh so yeah movie allowed me to to I don't know if anybody was impressed by what I said. Uh, and again, I did not, it just, it just came out. I didn't mean to say it, but, uh, but if they were, then, uh, I have movie to thank for impressing my classmates. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's fun. That's what we, that's what we get here. Yeah. That's, that's why we do this. That's why we get out of bed in the morning, David. <laughs> um, we also get out of bed for tweakedaudio.com earbuds, which come in a variety of uh stylish styles and colorful colors and they look great and they sound great um and you can find them at tweakedaudio.com we use them all the time in fact um we might i'm just saying this right now i don't know if it's true or not we might be giving away some at our meetup yes i believe so we have uh which has already happened Oh, we might have given up. away some at our yeah. meetup. It's That's entirely right. possible. Uh, we, we should have said it in the movie journal. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, some tweakedaudio.com earbuds. Thank you, Tweaked. Um, you guys are the best. Uh, your earbuds sound great. And you guys can pick up your own copy, uh, your own copy, your own pair, um, or multiple pairs. Christmas is just around the corner. Absolutely. Uh, at tweakedaudio.com uh, for a low, low price. But if you go to, if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that already low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Boy, I mean, yeah. I'm exhausted already. Yeah, we won't. This will be, this is just a fun one because I was thinking about it with a couple of things um, recently. Uh, And actually, weirdly, a, a lot of things recently. So I just... As I talked about on the movie journal, I just saw Ava DuVernay's documentary Thirteenth. Mm-hmm. I will be uh, within a few weeks' time. I will have seen 
um, because they're coming out weirdly close to one another. I will have seen Jim Jarmusch's Gimme Danger right. and Jim Jarmusch's Patterson. Yeah. Um, I also will be, um, in a matter of days when you're hearing this, seeing Kevin McDonald's Sky Ladder. And I just, with all this happening, I was thinking about these directors who make both documentaries. Yeah. Uh, and fictional films. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm not there sure. are more of them than I thought when I started researching this, like, uh, like only three names came to mind. And then suddenly I realized, yeah. Oh, there are actually way more than I thought. Yeah. There are a lot. Although there are some like, um, Christoph Kieslowski, who I've never seen any of his documentaries, right. his earlier stuff. Right. I, I, so I, I can't really talk about Kieslowski as a documentarian. I haven't seen that, but yeah, there are, there are a lot. Uh, I think, um, I've already named a, a number of them, but um, the two that came to mind when I first thought, uh, other than the, exa- the examples from this fall that I just gave, um, the two that leaped to mind when I thought of this topic were, I think, Werner Herzog, who mm-hmm. is someone who um, is known for both. Do you know what I mean? Like it's hard yeah, yeah. To, uh, and then there's Spike Lee, who I think people – if he doesn't have a documentary out, people seem to tend to forget that he's a documentarian, yeah. but he is. Uh, and I've been saying this since at least four little girls, probably he's, uh, he is as strong a documentary filmmaker as he is a fictional filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Some of my favorite documentaries, um, of the last 20 years are four little girls when the levees, uh, broke and, um, bad 25. Uh, right. I haven't seen the more recent, um, Michael Jackson one, um, that I think is on, HBO or Showtime or something right. like on their uh, streaming thing. Um, and then of course, Spike Lee also makes like uh concert film or co- like comedy concert films, yeah. you know, um, original Kings of comedy, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and so those are the two that leap to mind for me. And I would actually be curious to know, uh, let's say young, let, let's go younger listeners like 25 or, or, or younger. Uh huh. Listeners, uh, feel free in the comments section, if you are 25 or younger, do you think of Herzog primarily as a documentary, uh, documentary, uh, filmmaker? I'm almost, they must. They must. Because, uh, his last, uh, and this is off the top of my head. I could be wrong. His last narrative film that I remember was my son, my son, what have you done? Which, oh, yeah. uh, I don't think a lot of people saw. Right. I didn't see it. Um, the last one that was Notable was probably Rescued On. Yeah, which is like 10 which years Which is ago now. 10 years old now. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but in that time, he's made, I guess, was Grizzly Man before Rescued On? It was 2005. Okay, so Grizzly Man was right before Rescued On, but he's made like Cave of Forgotten Dreams, Encounters yeah. at the End of the World. Um, he's lo and Behold. Lo and Behold. He's got uh, an Into the Ab- Into the Abyss. Is that what Into the called? Abyss and Into the Inferno. Into the Inferno, which is coming out. Yeah. Um, like, where does he Netflix. get? These are not small documentaries. These are not like little talking head documentaries. Like these require a lot of time and money. Where does he find either? Yeah, I I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't think it's hard for him to find funding. Uh, I'll bet. I guess not, but I mean, movies probably don't cost that much and probably make their money back. I guess that's true. Um, yeah, but I, uh, I kind of knew you were going with that question and I, and I'll bet you're right. I'll bet that, that people, uh, who came of age as film, as cineasts in the last 10 years probably think of Werner Herzog as a documentary filmmaker first and foremost. What is, if I say Herzog, what's the first movie that comes to your mind? Um, probably Aguirre. Okay. That's probably the first one that I saw. 
Okay. What about you? What would you say? Honestly, my favorite film of his is Fitzcarraldo, but honestly, like the first place my mind will go is probably Grizzly Man. Much to my surprise. Uh, I don't blame you though. Grizzly Man is, uh, is incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, but probably I'd probably just go with Aguirre because it's the first one. And it is my favorite of his films. And actually, I've never seen it. So, and I know it's very iconic. And, and, and I like his, I like his version of Nosferatu and, and all that. But, uh, but yeah, it's, and it's strange to me because there's a lot of, you know, Fitzcarraldo is iconic in a number of ways. Uh, but for whatever reason, like Grizzly Man, that certain, that wasn't the first film of his I've seen. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, I think, I think because he is such a presence in it, not merely because of the narration, but because you actually see him on screen, uh, once or twice, uh, the, and it's just, it seems like such an extension of himself. And I recognize that his narrative films are that as well, but this one, for whatever reason, I think maybe because he, he is directly involved in it. Um, uh, and of course, obviously Jack Reacher, which I, I like to think of as a <laughs> Werner Herzog film. Uh, what about, um, incident at Loch Ness? <laughs> That's right. Yes. And you have not seen his, You never saw his appearance on parks and rec. Did you? Uh, no, I never did. Boy. Oh no. boy. It is delightful. Um, now, so we've talked about directors who are good at both mm-hmm. and we'll get back to more of that. Yeah. But, uh, I want to talk about directors, and we don't know yet with um, Jim Jarmusch um, in terms of, because uh, I haven't seen Gimme Danger yet, and that's his first real documentary. He did make Year of the Horse, which yeah. is the... Um, which the, I heard was not good. Uh, I've never seen it. It's a Neil Young like, concert film, yeah. right? Um, it's a, I believe it's a concert film and like a tour film. Okay. So... That's just, speaking of Neil Young concert films, how could I forget Jonathan Demme as someone who works in both? Oh, yeah. Uh, um, even though he's someone I think is... Well, actually, you know what? There's a perfect example here of um, Jonathan Demme is someone who makes both, but I would say his fiction films are much stronger. Um, I like um, the documentary. Is it called The Haitian or something? Oh, boy. Um, that was good. But his I mean, his own – maybe Neil Young is the problem here because um, <laughs> Jonathan Demme's Neil Young movies are diminishing returns. They mm-hmm. They keep getting worse. Um, maybe he's just that elusive, uh, of a person that you cannot, you can't document him. Yeah. Maybe it's the agronomist. Is that what the agronomist? That sounds right. It takes place in Haiti or it's about a Haitian. That sounds Um, familiar. Yeah. I think it's Um, the agronomist. Uh, yeah. The agronomist 2003. Um, but I want to talk about some, someone I already mentioned, Kevin McDonald. Yeah. I don't think I've connected with any of his fictional work. I, I think you liked the last King of Scotland more than I did. And I didn't hate yeah. it. Yeah. And I don't love it. There are things I love about it. Uh, but as a film, I think it's effective and fine, but let's like, let's look at Kevin McDonald as a, um, fictional filmmaker. Yeah. Right? Last King of Scotland state of play. Yeah. The Eagle. I didn't see. Neither did I. Um, and Black Sea, we both saw. Yeah, which I just saw. None of these are turkeys, I guess. I don't right. know. State of play, I think, is pretty weak. But yeah. Uh, but then, if you compare it to, um, you know, touching the void. Well, what's what's interesting and, to me, and, and even I mean, I'm not a big um, Bob Marley fan, but 
Marley I saw. Yeah. Uh, and I'm looking forward to Skyladder. It's coming out uh, very soon. Well, what's interesting about Touching the Void is that it is a documentary, kind of. Yeah. I mean, there's just as much there. Are, it's a documentary that features actors and staging and very specific, uh, you know, cinematic choices and that sort of thing. And so, you know, when I think of Black Sea, narratively, I don't think it's that interesting, but just you know the sequences of of characters like you know walking on the ocean floor and all that like that's really first off it's very ambitious and it's really effectively done and part of me thinks like wow how did a guy who makes documentaries how is he able to oh right the documentary that i most associate with him is touching the void which is like full of ambition maybe the point this is gonna sound mean and i hope kevin mcdonald isn't listening i don't know why he would be um Maybe Kevin McDonald isn't a better documentarian. Maybe he's just a worse fiction filmmaker. Like maybe the reason his fiction films are flatter is because he's good at staging sequences, but not good at getting across um, things like character and motivation. And when he has those sort of prepackaged for him in terms of true stories and and interviews with real people, um, then he can let that part do the work for him and focus on, um, staging these the, these sequences. Yeah, and I'm, maybe I'd say that probably his most effective film, having not seen The Eagle, but uh, his most effective narrative film, uh, it's not a fictional film because it's based on a true story, but uh, is The Last King of Scotland. And I think that's because you have the force of Forrest Whitaker playing a very dynamic person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody focused, you know, that film won tons of awards and it was always they were always best actor nothing else cuz mm-hmm. it's cuz that's what that movie is um and he simply directed around that so it's a, he's a perfectly competent and sometimes a very effective direct uh, he's a very effective director but he's not a very good storyteller i think and so um and while there there is a story to touching the void it's a very simple one and it's one that well, all I got to do is cut to the guys themselves and they'll tell the story for me. I just, all I have to do is not screw it up. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think he's, it seems unlikely to me that he's ever going to make a movie as good as touching the void. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a, I would say an early peak, but he worked for a while before that. I think yeah. one day in September was in 1999. And that was yeah. the one, which I haven't seen that, but I know that was, um, that's the earliest of his movies that I heard of. I didn't mm-hmm. really know his name until touching the void, but, um, so then that makes me think of what makes someone good at at both. And I think let's look at Spike Lee. Okay. Um who is someone who I think even in his fictional films or his uh narrative films like Malcolm X, which is not a fictional film, um he's good at organizing and presenting information in a way yeah. that um, becomes, I think, to a certain type of viewer like myself, becomes like the the rat in the cage hitting the pleasure thing to me. Yeah, like, yeah. Just like getting to the next thing, one to the next, the next. But he's yeah, also, he also right. presents it very entertainingly, and he and he does that. And maybe entertainingly is the wrong word when you're talking about something like Four Little Girls or When the Levees Broke, which let's is about say all uh, stuff. engagingly. Yeah, yeah, compellingly. Yeah, um, that's good. Yeah, he he's 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 very good at that. And something that Spike Lee and Werner Herzog both know how to do is to make things even 
to, to point a camera at something and make it seem larger than life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Like through, I don't know if it, you know, framing and lenses and color timing and whatever you're doing, um, he's, uh, making, be it, you know, the, um, the levees or, you know, the shore of the Mississippi and mm-hmm. New Orleans or, um, in lo and behold, lo and behold, recently just putting your camera at like servers and stuff like that. Like yeah. there's a, there's a presentational aspect to these directors when they're working in fiction or narrative or if they're working in, in documentary. And there, and there does seem to be just like a, a which makes sense because same director, but I've only seen four little girls. I should say that, but there's definitely a thread that runs through Spike Lee's passion projects, you know, and I would venture to say that something like inside man is a perfectly fine film. Uh, but compared to something like Malcolm X or do the right thing, I would say not, he's not quite as passionate about that or old boy as he is about these other films. (laughs) And you know, I know I haven't seen inside man, but I know some people who will really go to bat for it. They're a, they're not correct um, as a um, uh, as a sort of companion to the twenty fifth hour in terms of being a post nine eleven New York City movie. I guess I guess that's, it's that again. The, this is I haven't seen the movie. That's just I've heard that talked about. The problem is that you know because he's working within a genre, uh, you can either like really like really embrace the genre aspect of it. And oddly enough, then the more you embrace that, the more the the other you know socio political elements can come out. But and and he does again. It's a perfectly fine film. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it. But um, but it also just seems so disposable to me. Whereas Twenty Fifth Hour seems like an essential movie. Um, oh yeah, but, if you're talking if we're talking about Spike Lee's non documentaries, it goes do the right thing. 25th hour for me. That's, that's the one and two Malcolm X and and 25th hour probably duking it out for number two, but do the right thing is, is uh, to me, obviously number one, but um, I should watch Malcolm X again. It's been a long time. I haven't seen it in a while, but I actually have a surprisingly good memory for it. Like that's, it's a very powerful film with a very powerful lead performance, but yeah, I like him. I like Spike Lee in it as well. (laughs) Yeah. It's (laughs) yeah. Like, uh, who is it? I, this is like a story of a story of a story, but yeah. I seem to recall a uh, friend of the show, Mike Schmidt talking on uh, never not funny about uh, uh, watching Malcolm X with a friend. Um, and there's this part where Spike Lee uh, is like just zooming straight towards the camera by yeah. like, <laughs> like looking at the camera. And like Mike, apparently uh, Mike's friend said, you know, Hitchcock was happy with just like a little cameo. <laughs> just, so um, um, have you ever heard <clears throat> Spike Lee telling the story about getting, financing from Malcolm X because the studio didn't want to do it. And he ended right. up getting, um, donations from a lot of, um, black celebrities and public figures mm-hmm. and stuff. And he was talking about, uh, I, I just remember this very, very funny. He was like, uh, so he was like, yeah, so I, I called magic Johnson and he gave me some money. And he was like, then I called Michael Jordan and I told him how much magic gave me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, but that's the thing. I think, I think, um, when a narrative filmmaker or a fictional filmmaker, whatever you want to say, when they make a documentary, I feel like it's almost invariably a passion project, right? Like it has to be like, they see something in real life that they feel like a narrative, like a a fictional film with actors is not enough to capture this. You know, it's, I feel like it has to be right. Yeah. I guess it must, 
I guess it must be, yeah. Yeah, I mean, hmm. Whether it be Martin Scorsese making something about the band or... Yeah, uh, or My Voyage to Italy. Yeah. Um, which I never saw. Um, I'm not sure if I've seen any of Martin Scorsese's documentary. Like, I didn't see the Rolling Stones one. Shine a Light? Shine a Light. I think I've only seen The Last Waltz. Um, I can't... I love Martin Scorsese. I don't think I can ever watch The Last Waltz because I don't like the band. I don't like them. I don't like them that much, but it's... A, but. You know, a testament to Scorsese's filmmaking ability is that I still enjoy the film itself. Um, Just as I didn't like a lot of the music in Woodstock, but it's a well, it's a well-made enough, right, well right. enough made film that, uh, that yeah, I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, but I see what you're saying. Like, um, yeah, Jim Jarmusch is going to uh, make his documentary debut with a movie about Iggy Pop. That seems like yeah, yeah. It's something he cares about. And so, I, and I think that's the thing is is maybe that's why. I, okay, hang on now. If you have a successful narrative filmmaker who ventures into documentary, it's not because it's not because a studio recruited him. Right. Like a studio said, "Well, we got this documentary. Who are we going to get to make it?" Right. Yeah. Whereas, if you have a successful documentary filmmaker, it is more likely the studio will say, we've got this story. We have this script that we want to produce. Who can we get to make it? Well, there's this guy over here. Let's give that a try. And, and so that's how we get Kevin McDonald. Yeah. And, and it's possible that as, as effective a filmmaker as they are, they might have, they might not have the personal investment that you would have with a filmmaker going the other way. Uh, yeah, that's it's a, a theory I just came up with. I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't. I feel like I don't know quite enough about this topic to actually uh, to actually prove that. Um, then you get some that weirdly work. Okay. Um, or at least a debut that weirdly. Not even a debut because she had made other, but a studio thing. Okay. Penelope Cirrus okay. is known for me in the old David Bax brain. Sure. For two things: the decline of Western civilization mm-hmm. and Wayne's World. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um and I do think there's a there's a sense of like bold fun I think mm-hmm. that probably comes from making movies about punk rockers. Yeah, I think so. Um that that shows up in Wayne's World. Like Wayne's World is not a movie that is overly concerned with uh conventions. Yeah, or narrative uh cohesion. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh and that's what makes Wayne's World I think a modern comedy classic. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Have we talked about like, where is the public on Wayne's world? Well, I can tell you where I am on Wayne's world. I haven't seen it since I was young. And even at the, t- and at the time, and this is probably to the film's credit at the time, I didn't know how to take it. Uh-huh. Uh, it just seemed so there wasn't much I could latch onto. That's what I mean when I say like lack of narrative cohesion is right. that like, I think like we there, just talked about this, didn't we? We did. T- well, cause we were talking about like songs from movies and I think we brought up Wayne's world. Oh, so um, yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody. That's right. We but did the, this. but yeah. And, and so I feel like, I think you're absolutely right when you say that there, there's a, a certain mentality, a certain punk rock mentality of just like, I'm going to do whatever sounds right as I make this Wayne's yeah. world movie. And yeah. she directed a movie that actually, lends itself to that because it's based in these characters, not in larger situations. You can just put these characters in any situation and it can be funny. But then that was her curse because she made a successful studio comedy based on 
TV, mm-hmm. and her next two films were The Beverly Hillbillies and The Little Rascals, uh, which I never even saw the the nineties Little Rascals. I remember, I, I remember I seeing The Beverly Hillbillies, um, and even, I, I, even at the time, I didn't think it was very good. I like Jim Varney. Yeah, and Cloris Leachman uh, is is in the film. Uh, I did. I I saw both, uh, but I haven't seen The Little Rascals in quite some time. But I remember it being. Uh, you know, fun. It, it was just, it was, it was from that same mold as like Home Alone and Dennis the Menace and all that, where just, where we're not necessarily, they're not terrorizing adults or anything like that, but it's just like kids getting into high, a very specific type of 90s hijinks. Yeah. Um, um, all right. I, I, I want to, um, bridge, uh, and not just because I don't want to just do this because we're going from woman to a, another woman director, but the idea of taking the things that, uh, you do in a documentary and using mm-hmm. it. I recently watched, and now I have seen shamefully few um, Agnes Varda films overall. I don't know if I've seen any, but I did. Uh, someone recently, we talked on the movie journal. I wrote a, a review. Watched the Cinelicious uh, Picks put out a two disc set that was her documentary Jane Jane B. Par Agnes V. Jane oh, yeah, yeah. Birkin by Agnes Varda, which is a documentary by Jane Birkin. And also the movie Kung Fu Master, which is the movie she made right. with Jane Birkin based on a short story that Jane Birkin had written. Anyway, um, I definitely think the documentary half of those is better, but I feel like um, Agnes Varda is the type of filmmaker who, like, if you if you if you were to say to her, like, oh, you make documentaries and and narratives, or whatever, I think. I get the impression her response would be like, ah, if you say so, I'd just make movies. Yeah. You know, I feel like that's kind of how it feels. It yeah. feels to me like Kung Fu Master is often very naturalistic and casts non-actors, whereas Agnes B or Jane B part Agnes V or whatever has lots of things that are, yeah. that are staged. In fact, most of it's a documentary, but most of it is like staged and uh, has Jane Brooke and recreating yeah. things that she has already said. Um, uh, so I, I, I feel like for the purpose of this episode, Agnes Varda is almost like oh, we're imposing that on her. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, um, so I, okay. I'm thinking of a lot of things that might actually be for a different episode that are more about like the nature of documentary and why, and why somebody would choose to make a documentary as opposed to a, uh, a, a traditional narrative film Let's with actors and a script mind. and that sort of thing. Let's keep that in um, mind from another, another episode because there must be, I'm, I must be thinking, I'm sure I'm forgetting of someone, but there must be a director who has made a documentary and then also made the adaptation, right? Uh, it seems like there should be, uh, no, no, nothing is springing to mind. But I think, I mean, I, it, this never, um, came to fruition, but I think I remember it wasn't, um, and he should be on my list too. Seth Gordon, who made the King of Kong, wasn't he going to make, was, there was talk that he was going to make, also make the fictional version of the King of Kong that never happened. And I actually don't, I, I don't know that. And then I think he went on to make four Christmases. Oh boy. Well, that's unfortunate. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'll I didn't say, see four Christmases. I'll say this. And the I, whole, know, I mean, I'm sure that four Christmases is just jokes about like their relative heights, right? It's Vince it would Vaughn. Have to be. Yeah. Who's seven foot eight. Yeah. And Reese Witherspoon who fits in my pocket. Yeah. And then they just go from one family to another and just in-laws saying like, how is this not a problem for you guys? <laughs> just over and over again. But sometimes it's Robert Duvall. Sometimes it's John Boyd. Um, so this is a weird thing to say because it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily fit. 
uh, on here. Um, to my knowledge, and I was looking through his filmography a moment ago, uh, and so there, there's one film that might actually uh, qualify. Doesn't it seem like Oliver Stone should be a documentarian? <laughs> yeah. Like, um, not, not full on, but when you, because yeah. you were talking about pre- presentation of information. Well, that's what JFK is all the way through. That's almost a documentary in some ways. Yeah. Except it isn't. Like, there's still like a speculative documentary. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, before I forget. Uh, obviously there's someone who's made a documentary and they made the fic- fictional version. It's Werner Herzog who made little Dieter needs to fly oh, yeah, there and you go. rescued on. There you go. All right. Um, so stop. You can not send your emails. Yeah. Just keep, keep focusing on the emails that you're undoubtedly sending from the first half of the show. <laughs> that's going to make me want to crawl under a rock. Um, so, but yeah, it's it, it, JFK seems like an odd thing. And when you think about it, not like uh, Oliver Stone is so not a documentary guy that when you have the definitive Edward Snowden film Citizen Four come out, yeah, he still thought, nope, not yeah. enough. Yeah. We need to make a narrative film and make one that is. I haven't seen Snowden, but I'm going to say infinitely worse than the documentary. Um, yeah, yeah. You and I were talking off mic a few days ago. I think it was off mic. Yeah about um remakes that everyone forgets and just goes back to thinking of the original we were talking we were talking specifically about the somewhat recent um total recall remake and the more recent point break remake which everyone has already forgotten and And, now and having rewatched it the thing is something people just don't talk about at all yeah yeah Yeah. um and i feel like yeah snowden is going to be a version of that where like citizen four is going to be the movie that everyone remembers and then it's going to be like a trivia like footnote like oh did you know oliver stone made a fictional version oh same with devil's knot uh oh yeah which, which I, is adam mcgoyan who i like and and there's some good stuff in that film but like when you have three do- three solid documentaries about this subject plus west of memphis the other documentary like because there are the three paradise yeah. lost ones of which i've only seen the first one and there's west of memphis which yeah. i which i saw so what are you going to do in yeah. your 100 minute narrative film <laughs> yeah. where you where on top of everything else, you still need to sell it as a narrative? Yeah, that is like, w- why are you even doing this? Like, if anything, it seems like the narrative should be like the Adam McGoyan film should be like a special feature on like the box set of the Paradise <laughs> Lost films. Yeah. And yeah, a hundred minutes. Because even West of Memphis, which tried to do it all in one, is still a two and a half hour movie. Yeah, it would have to be. Um, it's uh, yeah, Devil's Not is such a misguided film. Uh, no, I don't have many more. In fact, the only one, I, other one, I wanted to talk about. Um, I don't know. Is this guy a Kevin McDonald who's not as talented? Or is it just that I haven't seen enough of his fiction work, and that's James Marsh? Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, yes, uh, that's on here. Uh, I because think I love, I mean, like, Project Nim, holy shit, that movie's amazing. Um, and I know um, there's Man on Wire. He's, I haven't know, seen all of, I have not seen all of Man on Wire. I have not seen Project Nim. And I did not like The Theory of Everything all right. very much. But then I know he did one of, the, like, the the Red Riding uh movies okay which i and i haven't seen any of those but i did see shadow dancer oh you did okay and i saw the king oh and i've heard mixed things about the king i've heard some people like it and 
Well, I'll say this. It's definitely an uncompromising film. It's, it's a film that I find deeply depressing. I would like to talk, and there, because there are like a, there are certain uh, spiritual or at least religious elements to it, uh, it's something that I want to talk about on more than one lesson, except that means I would have to rewatch it, which would not be difficult from an artistic standpoint, but it is so, boy, that movie does a number on you. It's a very effective film. Okay. Um, to the point that it's, when I... So it's interesting to hear from the director of uh, The Theory of Everything, which couldn't have been more uh, of a wet noodle of a movie. Well, and what's, what's strange to me is that when I saw that James Marsh had directed, you know, Man on Wire and Project Nim, my first thought was, well, surely it's a different James Marsh. Because I've heard that these documentaries are wonderful, and then I know that he made Shadow Dancer and The King and The Theory of Everything. Like this guy has, he has like two perfectly serviceable, if not, you know, admirable careers. Like at, at any point, he could just give up documentary and do uh, narrative film, and it would be fine. Or he could give up narrative film and go to documentary, and he'd be fine. But he does seem to bounce back and forth between the two pretty effectively. Like, uh, and that's the thing. I didn't see theory of everything. It didn't look that good to me. Most people I know do not care for it, but it's still like an awards contender and that sort of thing. And he's going to continue making narrative films. And I think, and it looks like he's going to continue making documentaries. Good for him. And so, uh, one, one for him, one for them. (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. And I mean, he won, Uh, he won an Oscar for man on wire. Now I did Um, have a couple other, others I wanted to talk about. How do you have, you have some more? I have a few. Okay. Well, uh, the one I just thought of that I hadn't thought of before because I haven't seen any of his documentaries is James Cameron. Who's made a couple of uh, deep sea. He made, um, aliens of of the the abyss, ghosts of the abyss and aliens of the deep. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen either of them. Yeah. Me either. Okay. Uh, okay. So I've got Vim vendors. Okay. Who made Buena Vista social club and, uh, uh, Pina or a Pina. Yeah. Pina. And also, um, salt, he's made the salt yeah. of the earth. Yeah. He's uh, made a number of them. And then, and I'm not even that familiar with his, uh, non narrative work. I mean, obviously there's a uh, uh, wings of desire and Paris, Texas non documentary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Um, and, but if, as far as I know, like uh, there's a lot of people that don't necessarily think of him first and foremost as a documentarian, but they know him. They know him as like Wings of Wings of Desire, Paris, Paris Texas, Texas, and then a number of documentaries. Yeah, you know they're not talking about the end of violence, you know, or uh, or uh, down in the valley. Um, um, so I do have a, I do have a few others. All right, yeah, let's run let's run through them and then I'll I'll end with something and then we'll wrap. Up. Okay, uh, Michael Apted. Yeah, and I've never seen the Up movies. I've seen several. I haven't seen all of them. Okay, but that's the thing. Like his contribution to film. And I recognize he made the coal miner's daughter. He made gorillas in the mist. He made Nell. He made, you know, he's made, uh, interestingly enough, he made the, the James Bond film. The world is not enough. He also made the film enough. So I guess he got there eventually. Uh, he made chasing Mavericks taking over from, uh, That's right. uh, uh Curtis, Curtis Hanson. Uh, the world is not enough. Uh, not, not one of the better James Bond movies. No, it is one of the best James Bond theme songs. Uh, Which theme, one is that? Uh, it's The World Is Not Enough by Garbage. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, I, I can't call it to mind. Um, but that's the thing. Having made these films, you know, Gorillas in the Mist and, and uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, like those are Oscar-worthy films. But his contribution to film, and it's, a, and it is, it's never going to be forgotten, is the Up series. Mm-hmm. Like nobody 
that's not going anywhere. Like he's going to keep making them until he dies. Uh, and everyone's everyone feel at some point feels like this is a thing I need to watch because it's just so fascinating. Yeah. And it's just, and it's interesting to me that, that it took a, a, a guy who, you know, he's done other documentaries, but this is the, this is his lifelong project. And it's interesting that it took a narrative filmmaker to think to do this. Uh, and even then didn't think it's not like he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this for my entire life. <laughs> it started as just this little, Oh, wouldn't it be interesting to do a follow-up uh, seven years later and then quickly became fascinated by this thing. And I feel like it's a choice that a narrative filmmaker would make, hmm. not necessarily a documentarian. Um, but uh, okay. And then, I feel bad because I haven't seen it, but I know that, it, which is unfortunate because I think it's a, it's a special feature on the, on the master Blu-ray, but John Huston made a film called let there be light, which I've heard great things about. Yes. And he also made the battle of San Pietro. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't think about him. Um, so, uh, and then I wanted to bring up two that are striking to me. One is Michael Moore who oh, made, right. who's Canadian a documentarian and, and then made Canadian bacon, which I think I prefer to any of his documentaries. <laughs> I do think Sicko's pretty good, even if I don't agree with his, his conclusions. Um, and I think a lot of his information is, is dubious the vast majority of the time, but with Canadian bacon, you don't have to worry about that because it's narrative filmmaking, yeah. fictional yeah. filmmaking. And you didn't see where to invade next. I didn't. And I also didn't see capitalism, a love story. And yeah, no one did. Everyone forgets that it yeah. exists. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and so that's, that's interesting to me. Um, and then I also wanted to bring up, um, Orson Welles with F for fake, right? Which is a documentary big, there's multiple question marks at the yeah. end of that, qu- that question. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's the only type of document. I know he made, he made, uh, it's all true. And he did stuff for like the, the, the war effort and that sort of thing. But, but. Right. This is something that sprang from him, uh, yeah, but it's all true. I mean, I guess that was never finished, but it's full yeah. of recreations and stuff, yeah, uh, as well. Right? Yeah, and so and he he found narratives within right. uh, this the, the 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 things he was documenting and focused in on that. Um, but yeah, F for fake, like it sprang from him. It's a thing he decided he decided he wanted to make. It's what you know. In in a, war, in a in a whole career of unfinished films, he finished F for Fake. So clearly, yeah. this was a priority for him, and it's such a strange choice because, yeah, I guess it's a documentary, or in the sense yeah. that there's no clear story and it's not performances, you know, there or and it's not a, a, a set script or anything like that. I think but that it's, might be a top five Wells movie from or top a top three. I'm going to really? say okay. Kane Amberson's F for Fake. Then, well, because I've never seen uh, Chimes, at Chimes at Midnight, which yeah. uh, which I hear is great. But um, off the top of my head, yeah, Amberson's is my favorite. Then okay. Kane, then F for Fake, then probably Othello. What about Touch of Evil? Let's say that's the top five. I just okay. there. There's the top five. Othello is amazing. Yeah the the order could get switched, yeah. but it's Kane Amberson's F for Fake, Othello, Touch of Evil. But yeah, I'm, I can I'm excited for you to see Chimes at Midnight. I do think that's, I think top for me, top three for me is is Kane. I think 
Touch of Evil might, I think Chimes at Midnight might actually edge out Touch of Evil for okay. me uh, after all these years. But th- those are the top three for me. And I haven't seen Ambersons in a while. But uh, um, Mr. O'Cotton yeah. doesn't make the cut for me. It's, uh, I haven't seen the, uh, we saw. We saw Confidential, Confidential Report. Report. Which was full of Wellesley and Tom Foolery. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, um, think, I, I think the book we read that in, we read it in like some HBO video guide or something yeah. like that. I believe they said that in reference to F for Fake, not Mr. O'Cotton. Yeah, well they, well, they got it wrong. The one that's full of all the Wellesian tomfoolery is Mr. Cotton. There's a fair amount of tomfoolery in F for Fake. In fact, one could say the entire film is that. Yeah. I love F for Fake. Don't get Tom me wrong. Fool, tomfoolery with a, with a purpose, though. Sure, absolutely. Uh, all right. Um, and then the last, okay, the last thing, is it, are you done? I'm good. All right, the last thing I want to mention is one that goes the other way. This is a director you don't think of as having made a fiction film because okay. he is one of the best known right. uh, documentarians of all time, and that's Errol Morris. But he did make a one-off in 1990, maybe, 89, 90, a one-off uh, fiction film um, called Dark, The Dark Wind. Um, that is, uh, Lou Diamond Phillips plays a um, policeman on an Indian reservation. And it, so it's a it's essentially a detective noir on an Indian reservation. But um, it is a very odd and very cool uh, little movie that I would mm-hmm. definitely recommend people um, check out it also um, stars one of the other major Native American actors uh, or I guess he's technically a First Nations actor because he's mm-hmm. Canadian uh, but I'm drawing a blank on his name you'd recognize you saw him he's a he's a big guy is it um, uh, Gary Farmer yeah I think it is okay yeah um, he's a good actor I like him a lot he was in Dead Man and he was in uh, Smoke Signal Signals and yeah he's a good actor um, the yeah. score, I think he was in the score. Um, if that's what I'm thinking of, well, or rather who you're um, thinking of. Um, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it is Gary Farmer. Okay. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I don't have much to say if dark wind is available on D like on disc from Netflix. That's how I saw it. If you, if you're one of the few people like me who still yeah. has the disc, uh, I have to assume option. that. I assume you're just too lazy to cancel it, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, I know you can get the disc. Um, it's not a great uh, DVD. I, I don't think it's um, uh, even in the right aspect ratio. Um, that seems like a movie that's ripe for some for some yeah, Blu-ray it, distribution was, company to snatch up. Um, it has an interesting story, too, because it was made um, with the Sundance Institute and Robert Redford's a producer and Robert Redford, I think from what I understand, didn't like the ending. It was essentially taken away from Errol Morris and reshot, which is why this, this weird kind of surrealist dark comedy suddenly has a very conventional detective, like shootout <laughs> ending, <laughs> um, uh, which in a way only makes the movie more weird. Yeah. Uh, definitely worth checking out the dark. It's like the, it's like the opposite of Mulholland Drive, where <laughs> yeah. it's just like it starts out weird and then becomes very conventional. Not to imply yeah. that the first half of Mulholland Drive is conventional, but it's definitely more narrative driven. Yeah. Um, uh, all right, so that's uh, that's our lists. Now here's the deal, okay. listeners. If you if you're looking at uh, if you're looking at your iPod or your phone or whatever it is or your computer screen, you might notice no, this is episode not using iPods. I don't know. I still have one. I don't use it, but I have, I have one. Two probably. Um, but uh, yeah, you're, they're they're. Uh, they're keeping your table steady. Like they're, they're underneath <laughs> right. the lake. Um, uh, you, but either way, you might've noticed that this is episode 499. 
Yeah, that probably has occurred to you. Next week is episode 500. We won't say what we're doing for it, but it's very exciting. And so, uh, so be sure to, uh, to tune in next week. And, uh, we've got a lot of fun stuff in store for you. Yeah. So, um, until then, you can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. That's where you can find all of our movie reviews, including uh, Rudy's review of The Birth of a Nation. That's he, right. Uh, uh, he saw that one for us. Um, uh, you can find the Battleship Reten- BattleshipRetention.com. You can email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at DavyPretension. And you can follow Tyler on Twitter. By the way, I just, just remember what I was going to say earlier. Oh, what was that? Because uh, it, it was about you not being sure if it was okay to call me Dave. Oh, yes, that's and right. I was going to uh, – this totally is it's what I thought it was. It's okay. not worth it. But I was going to point out that I used to be particular about being called David. Uh, and then I got over myself and became more comfortable mes- with myself mm-hmm. and realized people who are real particular about word, what name you call them by, yeah. what version of their name, they're probably just insecure people, which is why – People from San Francisco don't want you to call them, say, Frisco or San Fran or SF or whatever. It's because they've got a little complex, a little chip on their shoulder about the fact that L.A. is number one, baby. Here's, <laughs> I don't care for that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's to the point now that uh, <laughs> I don't know what this says about me, but I've, when I was a kid, I got so used to people calling me Taylor <laughs> instead of Tyler. I just stopped correcting them. Uh-huh. So now it's to the point now that if somebody calls me Taylor, I don't think that's my name, uh-huh. <laughs> but as far as how I react, yeah. I might as well because it's just like, ah, God bless them. They're trying. Yeah. There are people that thought my name was Kyle. That's interesting. So, uh, but yeah, so you're not going to, so battleship pretension hosted by Dave and Taylor. Yeah. Uh, you can call me David. You can call me Dave. You can call me Davey. Obviously that's mm-hmm. my, uh, Twitter handle, Davey pretension. Uh, and also San Franciscans get over yourself. Um, you can find Tyler on Twitter at Tyler pretension. Yeah. Um, your other podcast is called, uh, more than one lesson. Yes. All right. So Halloween times has officially begun. So we're talking about, uh, horror movies all, uh, all month long. And, uh, we decided to kick it off with, uh, a guest. His name's Andrew Clavin. He is a, he's a, a screenwriter and uh-huh. a novelist. He is all, okay, here's the thing. He is also a political commentator. And while we tried to keep politics out of it, we couldn't completely. And apparently I have bo- I've annoyed everybody. Okay. Um, because while we wind up uh, saying some things about liberals, the episode in general is about how we talk about werewolf movies because he's written a, a okay. book called Werewolf Cop, um, which uh, is about a, a, a vampire uh, paramedic, oddly enough. Um, <laughs> it's a joke that I made on the episode. But I anyway, like it. I like uh, that joke a lot. So, I knew what the joke was, but I was like, what's he going to say? Yeah, exactly. going to yeah. be postman? Yeah. Oh, paramedic. And then, of course, there's the mummy fireman. There's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of options there. Uh, but the uh, But we spend a good portion of it. Andrew and I are very much uh, on the same page as far as like, the way conservatives uh, engage with art, which is to say not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's something that bothers us tremendously. So we spend a good portion of the episode talking about conservatives and how they need to engage with culture more. But then along the way, uh, we not so much me, but Andrew throws out some stuff about uh, liberals that undoubt that people have found uh, upsetting and uh, understandably oh. so. Oh, oh good. So, uh, uh, remind me to not listen to that episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, there's, there's, there's nothing for you. I think Andrew's is, is, is a, light and i think he's actually 
he has a podcast that I've been on and, uh, he is a very, he's a very good writer and he's a very funny writer as well. Uh, and it's, it's been fun to hear him talk about this election because on top of everything else, he and I are both the vehement anti-Trump people. And so he just, you know, I remember I asked him, uh, but obviously he's not a, a Hillary Clinton fan either. And so I remember uh, he and I were emailing back and forth and I said to him, I said, so how, how do you think you are going to vote? And he goes, well, he's like, I think I'll either vote for Trump and hang myself or vote for Hillary and shoot myself. <laughs> and so that's kind of, that's the type of person he is. And it's uh, so you can find that at more than one lesson.com. It's a very different type of episode uh, to an off putting degree, apparently. All right. Um, my other podcast doesn't exist right now. It'll, it's on hiatus. I know. Uh, it'll come back in some form without Paul, but, um, uh, it was fun doing it for a few years, yeah. uh, with Paul there. Um, and, and a lot of the episodes are still available, correct? Uh, yes, yes. So many, people many can go them. back and, and listen. Yeah. It was called, Hey, watch this. If you want to find it, it'll come back in a sense right now. I'm getting so much into fall movie season ramping mm-hmm. up. Like I don't have time to watch much TV right now. So yeah. we're going to take a break, uh, and come back. Uh, later. So um, thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 